You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, please. The book of Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 18 through the end of verse 26 as we begin. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Let's bow our heads and pray as we begin. Our Father, we come now to your word and we have sung the sentiments of our hearts to you. And now we ask that you would speak to us through your word. This is the only revelation that we can know for sure is from you. And when your word is rightly preached, your voice is rightly heard. And so we look to you for help in this, that you might bring your word to bear upon our hearts, that we might have the illumination of the Spirit of God in order that we may understand your word, apply your word, and live in obedience to you and bring glory to you and your name's sake. We ask all of this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I grew up in a single single-parent home with a working mother, and so that meant that while I was growing up, while my mom was working, I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house and my great-grandmother's house. My grandmother's house was on the property that was owned by my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother lived on a farm. And my great-grandmother was a Seventh-day Adventist, and my great-grandfather, who sort of hung, hung, came along, I guess you would say, with the Seventh-day Adventism thing, I spent a lot of time with him. He was my buddy for many, many years growing up without a father, and I would spend time in the shop with my great-grandfather working on cars and welding and spend time in the barn working with animals and shoveling manure and out in the field doing the hay. He worked on all those things. I just spent time with him while he did all of those things. I didn't really have much to do with any of that. I was just a little kid. And I spent a lot of nights with my great-grandmother, and I spent a lot of meals with my great-grandmother, and she had a lot of quirks. One of her quirks was that every time my great-grandmother would utter a profanity, she would look out the kitchen window which faced the barn, and that's when she would utter her profanity. And she would always explain to me that it was okay to utter a profanity as long as you were looking at the barn when you did it. Now, as a kid, growing up, you have no idea how quickly your conscience can be cleansed with a quick glance to the barn. And I would do this on occasion. I would occasionally just look at the barn and utter my profanity, and my conscience would be clean. Uh, another quirk that my grandmother had, she was, she was a devout woman. 
in her Seventh-day Adventism. Now, I don't know for certain if she knew the Lord, Jesus Christ, or not. But she prayed a lot. She prayed before every meal. She taught me to pray. She would never allow me to place a Bible on the floor. Never was the Bible allowed to touch the floor. Neither was anything, a crayon, a pencil, a coloring book, allowed to be placed on top of the Bible. It had to be on top of everything else and nothing on top of it, never allowed to touch the floor. That's how devout she was. She was also devout with her food her food uh, limitations. She had memorized Leviticus, I think it's 17, with all of the clean and... She'd split the hoof, chew the cud, she know all of it, scales, dorsal fins... She could flip through an, an a animal almanac and tell you clean or unclean just by glancing at all of the animals that were in there. And she made sure that as a child I knew that every piece of pork that passed by these Gentile lips would contribute to my damnation. And every piece of bacon that I ate was unclean, profane, an abomination in the sight of God. And I knew this for certain. And I always wondered as a kid, is it okay to eat pork as long as I'm looking at the barn <laughs> when I'm eating pork? Because if it meant avoiding hell, I would eat every ham and eggs, every ham sandwich. I would eat it in the barn if necessary to avoid hell. Another quirk that my grandmother had, and she would not only bring up the, um, the eating of pork on a regular basis with me, but another quirk that she had was she would bring up from time to time, as often as came up or as often as she wanted to bring it up, the subject of the dead. And in talking about her parents or people who had passed on and had died, she would always assure me and reaffirm to me that the dead go to a place of sleep and slumber and that they cease to exist. And none of the dead right now while you and I speak know anything. In fact, they're all asleep. And she would bring this up all the time. And she would always quote a few words from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5, which says, the dead know nothing. It's always quick to say that. The dead know nothing. The dead know nothing. If I knew anything, it was that the dead knew nothing. Because she would quote that all the time. Anytime somebody was dead, anytime somebody had died, the dead know nothing. They're asleep. And that's what she sort of drilled into me. Now, this was before I came to trust in Christ as my Savior. This was before I had ever read the Bible. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't have a Bible. I just She took me to Sunday school. She told me these things. Sabbath school, sorry. She took me to Sabbath school. They don't have Sunday school in the Seventh-day Adventist. They have Sabbath school. She took me to Sabbath school. She explained all of this to me. But I never double-checked it, and I never knew how to double-check it. Well, after I came to faith in Christ, I started to read my Bible for myself, study these things. I went to Bible college, and I started to find out that a few things that great-grandmother Bloom believed were wrong. First of all, you can't have your conscience clean by glancing at the barn when you utter a profanity. That's what I found out was wrong. So children, if you think that's true, I'm here to tell you it's not true. When I found that out, all of a sudden, all the guilt of those years of profanity, I would look across fields, acres, quarter sections to see a barn when I swore. And as long as I was with an eye shot of a barn, I could swear, found out that was wrong. Also found out that the whole pork restriction and the, and the damnation that I was going to be under for eating pork, that was wrong. Those ceremonial laws have been taken away in Christ. He fulfilled that element of the law. This is not a moral issue. It was for the Jews. It was under the old covenant. Those don't apply to me anymore. Man, was I glad. I celebrated by eating a bacon and egg meal. Then the third thing that I found out that Grandma was wrong about was what happens with the dead. Now this doctrine, what what she was teaching me was a typical Seventh-day Adventist belief, that the dead know nothing. It's called soul sleep. 
It's also called in theological terms conditional immortality. If you ever run across the words conditional immortality, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about some form of this doctrine known as soul sleep. Now the reason I bring this up is because we're in Philippians chapter 1. We've been going through Philippians chapter 1. And some of the verses that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 have a direct bearing on this question of what happens to us after we die. Do we go to a place of sleep? Do we go into the grave and just rest until the day of resurrection? What condition are the dead in right now? Are they asleep? Are they awake? Are they alert? Are they alive? Are they in, in, as spirit beings in the presence of Christ or torment, depending on whether they are saved or unsaved, redeemed or unredeemed? How is it that the dead, those who have gone on before us, exist right now? Well, Paul addresses that in Philippians chapter 1. So that's why we're looking at it. Now, some of you may be saying to yourself, you know, Jim, before this morning, before last week, I had no question about this. I, I knew what I believed, that I depart, I go to be with Christ, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And that's what I believed. I've never questioned it, never had any problems with it. Some of you maybe have never even heard of conditional immortality or soul sleep before this morning, and you showed up here this morning, you read soul sleep. What is that? in the bulletin, and then I got to talk about it. He said, man, what a, what a wacky idea. I've never heard of that before. Some of you may have grown up in the same type of environment that I did with grandparents or parents or in a church that taught soul sleep. Now, Seventh-day Adventists are not the only ones that teach the doctrine of soul sleep. In all fairness, Jehovah's Witnesses hold to the very same uh, doctrine of conditional immortality, soul sleep. There are There's a segment of the Worldwide Church of God, some of you may be familiar with the Worldwide Church of God, Herbert W. Armstrong and Garner Ted Armstrong and that the group that they founded. It existed as a cult for many years. Several years ago, the president of the church sort of led a reformation of sorts within that group. It caused a splinter group. Some of them sort of came into orthodoxy and evangelical Christianity. Others of them embraced and held to their cultic beliefs regarding the person of Christ and the atonement and the resurrection and the death of Christ, the body of Christ, all of those things. And so they sort of still hold to that, con- that conditional immortality, soul sleep. And then within the broad brush of evangelicalism, there is a rare amount, a very small number, but a growing number of Christians who are, broadly speaking, conservative evangelical Christians who are beginning to embrace this idea of conditional immortality and soul sleep. So now we need to, what I want to do this morning is we're going to take a little chunk of doctrine, kind of an excursus, try that again start over, reboot, kind of an excursus of sorts to deal with this subject of conditional immortality or soul sleep. And we want to ask ourselves, does the New Testament teach that when we die, we go into sleep, that we just cease to exist or cease to be conscious? What does the Bible say about that? Now, the most prolific, the most predominant and articulate defenders of the doctrine of conditional immortality are the Seventh-day Adventists, and they've written tons on it. And so there's a lot to glean from their writings if I want to quote them which I'm going to do so that you can hear it from their own mouth. So let me explain to you what they believe. Here it is, quoting from a book over 500 pages long called Questions on Doctrine. It says this, quote, We as Adventists believe that in general the Scriptures teach that the soul of man represents the whole man and not a particular part independent of the other component parts of man's nature. Did you catch that? You say no because the minute you start quoting something, Jim, I zone out. Okay, let me go forward, go through it again because this is key. This is one of the central errors to the doctrine. Here it is. We as Adventists believe that in general, the Scriptures teach that the soul of man represents the whole man and not a particular part independent of the other component parts of man's nature. And further, that the soul cannot exist apart from the body, for man is a unit. 
We as Adventists have reached the definite conclusion that man rests in the tomb until the resurrection morning. Then at the first resurrection, the resurrection of the just, the righteous come forth, immortalized at the call of Christ, the life giver, and they then enter into eternal everlasting, into life everlasting in their eternal home in the kingdom of glory, such is our understanding, end quote. So here it is. The body and the soul cannot exist apart from each other. So if the soul, if the body dies, if the body goes to sleep, if the body goes into the grave, so must also the soul, because they say the soul and the body are indissoluble linked and one cannot exist apart from the other. So if the body dies, then the soul must also cease to exist or go into a state of sleep. And so when you read about the body and the soul in the Scriptures, it means the whole of man, so that anything that applies to the body applies to the soul-spirit. Anything that applies to the soul-spirit also applies to the body because they're indissoluble linked and one cannot exist apart from the other. In a book called Seventh-day Adventist Believe, they clarify it with this. Listen, the grave is, quote, the grave is not a place of consciousness. Since death is a sleep, the dead will remain in a state of unconsciousness in the grave until the resurrection when the grave that is Hades gives up its dead, end quote. So here's what they believe. You die and you simply go out of existence or go out of consciousness until the morning when Christ utters His words and the dead in Christ rise and the resurrection of all the just and all the saints come to life, then you reappear or re-become awake, awaken again with your body in your immortalized, glorified state, and that's when you enter into eternal life. Have you ever been under anesthetic? Anesthesia? Anesthesia is the weirdest stuff. It is the most... Thank you. It is the most interesting experience, I think, that I have had ever in my life, because this, when you go to sleep under anesthesia, it's nothing like going to sleep at night. Have you noticed that? You you're, go to sleep at night, you're still aware of sensations. Hot, cold, aches and pains. You sort of drift in and out of consciousness. You fluff your pillow, and you have some idea of what time it is, relatively speaking, and some idea of how long you've been asleep. But when you go under anesthesia, the last thing you remember is a bunch of people standing around your bed, and you're counting backwards from 100, and then that's it. And it's then you wake up, and you have no idea how much time has passed while you've been under anesthesia. To you, it was like a blink, like you blinked your eyes. That's how it feels. It feels like you blinked your eyes and you woke up and you have no idea how much time has passed. You have no dreams. You have no uh, awareness of consciousness, pain, sensation, hot, cold, anything like that. It's, it's like you died for a period of time and then came back to life. It's spooky weird. Well, Adventists and other soul sleep advocates say that's what death is like. The last thing you remember is laying in your hospital bed and all your family members are standing around and you feel a little bit groggy and then boom, you wake up and there you are in your resurrection body. And you have no idea how many hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades, centuries, or millennia have passed. And it could have been five millennia. It could have been five hours till the resurrection. You have no idea because you've basically ceased to exist. Now we're not going to deal with all of the texts that Adventists and soul sleep advocates use to prove their position, because I do want to get back to Philippians chapter 1, which is where we started in all of this. But I do want to, I do want to give you two basic errors that they make. And here they are. The first error is that they tend to quote scriptures out of their context. Now, I know that's kind of a canard when somebody feels they've been misrepresented and you say, well, you're quoting that out of context. And everybody says that. Well, you're just quoting that out of context. Well, no, Adventists really do do this. My grandmother did this all the time with Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. And here's what Ecclesiastes 9, 5 says. 
It says, For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. And she just quote a few words out of that. The dead know nothing. Like Schultz in... in um, now you know the show. Most of you guys are older than me. Like Schultz, the dead know nothing. They know nothing. That's all she would ever say. But she would never quote the rest of the verse, which says, "No, neither do they have any reward. What do you mean the dead do not have any reward? Does that mean that we don't get rewarded after we die and go to be with the Lord or we're resurrected? Do, do the dead not have any reward? She would ignore Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, where Solomon, speaking of death, says this, Man goes to his eternal home while the mourners go into the street. Man goes to his eternal home. Not just the grave, not into a state of sleep, but to his eternal home. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, two verses later. Solomon says, Then the dust, speaking of our body, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. So where does the Spirit go? Do you notice how Solomon differentiates between the body and the Spirit right there in Ecclesiastes chapter 12? So what happens when you die according to the book of Ecclesiastes? Not that you cease to know anything, and that you go out of existence. Solomon says, from the perspective of earth under the sun, those of us who are left, from that perspective, we look at the dead person and we say, look, they're no longer alive. They're not planning. They have no reward. They, they're not alive. They know nothing. But from the eternal perspective, their body goes into the dust from whence it came, and their spirit goes to be with the Lord, their eternal home. That is what the book of Ecclesiastes teaches about what happens after we die. But they quote that out of context. My grandmother did it all the time. I didn't know that. Always beware when somebody quotes a phrase out of a verse, four or five letters or four or five words out of a verse, without any reference to the rest of it. It should clue you in that, oh, oh, oh there's got to be something else going on here, especially when what they're saying doesn't quite sound so, so good. The second error that they make, not only do they quote scriptures out of context to make this case, but the second error that they make is that they confuse essential terms like body and soul. Those are not the same thing. Not the same thing. Body and soul. The fact that you and I can exist as a soul, as a spirit, should be readily recognizable to anybody who just thinks about it for a second. All of you right now have thoughts in your minds. I don't know what you're thinking. I'm quite glad I don't, actually. don't know what you're thinking, but all of you have thoughts in your minds. They're immaterial things. They're not material things. In other words, your thought is the function of your soul spirit. It's not the function of your body. It's the function of yourself. You as a soul spirit entity are thinking something right now. Now this body is involved in it. Your eyes and your ears and your mind and all of that is involved in the thought. But it's not your brain that's thinking because your brain doesn't come up with a physical entity called the thought. And if I were to saw the top off of your head right now and get a stick and root around in there, I wouldn't see any things called thoughts. They're immaterial things. And all of us know that just a little bit of reflection tells us, all of us know that what I am right here is more than just body. And that if this body were to perish, I would continue to exist in a cognizant, aware, and alert, and awake state after my death. But they confuse body and spirit and they say, they're the same thing and they're indissoluble. And Scripture doesn't teach you that they're indissoluble. This body will die. Uh, this, this doctrine of soul sleep is connected to another error. And this is what I want, to, I want you to see this connection. It's connected to another theological error. Nearly everybody that I have ever read on the subject of soul sleep who embraces this also embraces this error. It's called annihilationism. That is that they believe that hell is not an eternal place. 
that it just goes on for a period of time, we're punished for a period of time, then we're annihilated, we're snuffed out, destroyed, wiped out, cease to exist. Well, if you buy into annihilationism, if you buy into the idea that hell is not eternal, then you have to come up with a way of explaining what's going on to those who have been dead for 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years. What, are, what is the state of those who died in the flood? Have they been being tormented for 4,000 years? Because the annihilationist says, surely, and this is Seventh-day Adventist and Jehovah's Witnesses, surely a good God would not punish sinners in an eternal hell. So once you reject an eternal hell, you have to come up with some doctrine, some belief, that you create and defend to explain what happens to somebody who has been dead for a thousand or fifteen hundred or four thousand or six thousand years. Because if they're in a place of torment for six thousand years, that's a good indication that hell is not a temporary place, but an eternal place. Because if they cannot still pay for their sins after six thousand years of torment, then it's likely that they are not going to pay for their sins in an eternity of torment. So the doctrine of a not eternal hell and soul sleep go together. Now, is it possible for Christians to believe in soul sleep? And is it possible for Christians to deny that hell is eternal? The answer to that question is yes, it is possible. You might be a Christian and embrace a non-eternal hell. The problem is you're going to run into some problems when you read passages of Scripture. You're going to, whoa, 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 something wrong with this. I'm going to have to find ways to hop, skip, and jump all around this passage to avoid its clear implications. You may be a Christian and believe that the soul goes to sleep when you die, but the problem is you're going to run into passages like Philippians chapter 1, and it's going to make no sense to you whatsoever. So you might be a Christian who believes those things. With all due respect, you'd just be a wrong Christian who believes all those things. Really, the doctrine of soul sleep is not only unnecessary, it's also unbiblical. It's not necessary. You don't need to believe that. And there are passages of Scripture that actually teach the opposite. Philippians chapter 1. We'll start there. I'll give you a preview of Philippians chapter 1, and then I'll give you a couple other passages that show that soul sleep is an unbiblical notion. Philippians chapter 1, Paul is wrestling through this dilemma. Do you remember what the dilemma is from last week? Do I stay here or do I depart? If I stay here, it's more needful for the Philippians because they need me. So I would like to stay on in the flesh. But if I depart, I get to go to be with Christ. And that's far better. That's gain for me. To live as Christ, to die as gain. So if I'm going to depart and to go to be with Christ, that's very much better. But to remain on here in the flesh is more necessary for you Philippians. So he's wrestling with this dilemma, sort of vacillating back and forth between the two. And he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. I don't know which one to choose. Now I want you to imagine just for a second that the Apostle Paul believed in the doctrine of soul sleep. That he believed that when he died, when the executioner's axe came down and took his head off, that he would cease to exist or cease to be alert, aware, awake, and conscious, and that his body and his soul slash spirit were just going to go into the ground and sleep for a period of, an indefinite period of time. Imagine that Paul believed that. Now I ask you, make sense for me out of Philippians chapter one. To live as Christ and to die as, how is sleep gain? How is that gain? In what way is it gain for me to go into the grave into a state of unconsciousness? How is that gain? Paul wanted to depart, to die. He said, I prefer to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I want to die. I prefer this because it's far better. What is far better about sleeping in the grave than living on here in the flesh? If I'm here in the flesh, I have fellowship with you. 
I have support from You. I can pray. I can fellowship with Christ. I can worship. I can praise. I can serve. It means fruitful labor. It means all of these wonderful things for me as a believer in Jesus Christ to have You, friends, family, and everything that goes with it. But if I depart and I go into the grave in a state of sleep, I lose all of that. How is sleeping in the grave better than life? Very much better. Can you make sense out of that? Let me ask you a question. Would you rather spend the next year under anesthesia? Or would you rather spend the next year fellowshipping and worshiping and praising and serving and living with one another, eating, watching football, hot wings, all the good stuff that we get to enjoy? Which would you prefer? To live is Christ. To die, gain. Why? Because in dying, Paul would get more of that for which he was living. He was living Christ. And the only way that death can be gained is if death brings us more of that for which we have lived our whole lives. The only way that death can be gained is if I get more of Christ when I die, not less of Christ when I die. To go into the grave, to sleep, is to get less of Christ, not more of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me give you a preview of some Old Testament and New Testament passages that, that address this issue. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, We're always of good cheer because we know that to be present in the body is to be absent from the Lord. But we take courage and we don't fear. And we're encouraged because we know that, Paul says, I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul doesn't say to be absent from the body is to be in the grave sleeping. It's to be with Christ. Psalm chapter 16, even in the Old Testament, David, speaking of his own death and what he expected after death, we read it this morning. He said, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence as fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's what David expected to receive on the other side of death. The presence of God, the pleasures and the joys forevermore. Acts chapter 7, do you remember when Stephen was being martyred? He looked up to heaven and he saw the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And what did he say? Grave, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What did Stephen know? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say, look, today you're going to die. You're going to go into the ground. You're going to sleep for an indefinite period of time, almost 2,000 years now. One day you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. 1 Samuel chapter 28, in a, miraculous, in a miraculous episode, the Lord allowed the prophet Samuel to speak with Saul from beyond the grave. Do you remember that? Actually, Samuel, Saul got to see Samuel from beyond the grave. Was Samuel asleep? He wasn't asleep, was he? Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter, James, and John were there, what did they see? They saw Jesus speaking with two men. Who were they? Moses and Elijah. Were they sleeping? They weren't sleeping. They were awake. They were alive. They were alert. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, it says that all the martyred saints stand before the throne of God, not asleep, but crying out, Lord, how long, holy and just, will you refrain from avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Not asleep, alive, alert, and awake. I could go on. You could go on and on and on. But that's enough to demonstrate that not only is soul sleep unbiblical, it's also unnecessary. Scripture actually teaches the opposite. Friends, 
D.L. Moody once said when he was nearing his death and he knew he was sick, he knew he was dying, he said to some friends, one of these days you're going to read in the newspaper that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe it. At that moment, I will be more alive than I have ever been. That is what you and I get to expect and look forward to. We're not dead. We don't sleep. Friends, when this veil breaks open, when the veil parts and we get to step through the doorway to eternity, it's not going to be a miserable existence for those who know Christ. Not at all. It's not any event that is shrouded in pain. It's nothing that you and I are to fear. It is our enemy. It's the last enemy that will be conquered. So we don't have to try and conquer that now. But when we step through that veil, we have fellowship and joy and blessing and pleasure and glory beyond measure, beyond imagination. And you and I will not experience any ceasing of our consciousness. We will be awake and alive and alert here. And when you plow into the front of that semi-truck, you will not going to blink. You will not fall asleep. You will not wake up. You will step into eternity. Or however it is that you die. You will step into eternity. And there will be no time that passes between your death and you walking into or being into the presence of Christ. To be absent from your body, if you know Jesus Christ and you've repented of your sin and placed your faith in Him, is to be present with the Lord. That's it. There's only two realms of existence. Here and the eternal state. And you're either in one or the other. But there's no intermediate state. Okay, I promised you Philippians chapter 1, so let's go there and we'll deal with that. Philippians chapter 1. We started a section... Uh, last week that we didn't finish. We only got through verse 24, and we've kind of recapped that with Paul's dilemma that he faced. And I want to deal with verses 25 and 26, and then we're going to sort of recap this whole section and draw out a couple of applications from it. Look at verse 25 again. The Apostle Paul writes, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So Paul's been wrestling with this dilemma. Which one do I choose? I've got this one. I've got that one. I'm hard-pressed. I'm constrained or controlled between the two. I have this strong desire to depart and be with Christ, but a strong desire to be with you Philippians. That was the dilemma that we looked at last week. Now in verses 25 and 26, we get Paul's decision. If this were his decision to make, and you remember it's not, ultimately this decision rests with Nero when he stands before Nero. He's in prison. And ultimately, humanly speaking, this decision stands with Nero, but... Ultimately, divinely speaking, it's God's decision whether Paul would stay or whether Paul would leave. Now, it may be that God would call the Apostle Paul home, and so he would use Nero and the executioner to do that. But ultimately, this decision is not Paul's. It's not in his hands. Neither is your decision when you go or when you stay, Stay, by the way. That's not your call to make. You don't know what day that's going to happen. Some of you may die before this day is up. I hope you're prepared. Some of you may live to be 90, 95, 100 years old, and, and we'll get together in fellowship when that happens. When you get to be 100, then we'll get together. I'll be 101. And we'll fellowship together. But you and I are going to, you, you and I are going to, we do not get the option of choosing which day we're going to die. Ultimately, that decision is not ours. It wasn't Paul's to make. But Paul wrestles through the dilemma. He says, if it were my decision, which one would I choose? Would I choose life or would I choose death? Now, the life is more important for the Philippians. The death really is what I prefer. But if I had my druthers, which one would I rather have? Which choice would I make? Well, now you get the decision in verse 25. Paul says, convinced of this. 
He's convinced of what? What is he convinced of? Is he convinced that he's going to stay on in the flesh? That's not it. What's he convinced of? Verse 24, that it's more necessary for you that I stay. Paul says it's more necessary for you, more needful for you if I stay here. And so I'm convinced of this case, that it's more necessary for you that I be here. That's what he knew. See, the Philippian church was not a perfect church. There were a few issues that they were dealing with. We find out in chapter 2 and chapter 4 that they had some unity issues. They had a couple of women who could not live in harmony with each other that Paul addresses. Those are some things they needed to work through. There were false teachers that were threatening the church, we find out in chapter 3. There were some things that, man, if Paul could stay on and come back here and visit us and help us sort these things out, it would be really good for us. And Paul knew that. And so he says, I am convinced that for your sakes it's more necessary for you that I stay on in the flesh. That's what he's convinced of. So Paul says, since I'm convinced of that, I know that I will continue on and I will remain with you all. Now you say, Paul, how is it that you know this? Because beforehand you said, I'm hard-pressed between the two. I don't know which one to choose. Do I choose this or do I choose that? Now you're telling us that all of a sudden you know which one you're going to choose? I think the Apostle Paul is simply saying two things. Look, if it were up to me, this is which one I would choose. And second of all, this is my conviction of what is going to happen. Even though ultimately he didn't know and he's wrestling with it, Paul is saying, I'm convinced that it's necessary for you and so I know I'm going to stay on. I feel I'm going to stay. I'm convinced of this. I'm certain of this, that the Lord is not going to call me home. I'm going to, I'm going to have some more time to spend and I'm going to spend it with you. And if the Lord would allow the Apostle Paul to stay on with the Philippian church and spend more time with them and minister to them, Paul says, I know there's going to be three results. Three results. And that's in verse 25 and 26. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. The first result would be their progress. Now, back at the beginning of this section, chapter 12 through 26 is a section. We've been dealing with this whole section together. Back at the beginning of this section in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, chapter 12, verse 12, the Apostle Paul speaks of progress, but he's not talking about the progress of the Philippians. He speaks of a different type of progress, the progress of the gospel, right? Concerning my condition, the Apostle Paul says, my circumstances, I want you to know, it has actually resulted in greater progress of the gospel. And now at the end, he speaks about progress again, but it's not the progress of the gospel, it's the progress of the Philippians. So here you have this section of Scripture which is sort of bracketed by this idea of progress. And that word progress, as we saw back in verse 12, has the idea or carries the idea of advancing against opposition. Advancing against opposition in the face of hindrance, in the face of difficulty, you continue to progress. That's what the walk of faith is. That's what the Christian life is. It's not an easy road. If anybody ever told you when you became a Christian it's going to be a bed of roses and a bowl of cherries, you know that that's not true. They haven't read their Bible. That's not what the Christian life is. It's a difficult walk. It's a difficult slugging it out. You've got to wrestle with things. It's tough. And that's what progress is. At the beginning of the passage, it's your progress of the gospel. That's what I'm concerned about. How is the gospel advancing? When it can, pertains to my imprisonment, I don't care what happens to me physically if I'm in jail or out of jail as long as the gospel is being preached. Now here at the end, you have the Apostle Paul putting the progress of the Philippians first. Whether I live or whether I die, all I'm concerned about is your progress in the faith, that you would advance in the face of difficulty. First, their progress in the faith. Second, their joy in the faith. Your progress and your joy in the faith. You see, the Philippians would have a tremendous joy if the Apostle Paul were released and he showed up back in the city of Philippi, wouldn't they? Tremendous joy. Oh, here he is. We've been praying for him. We sent him gifts. We've been helping him. We sent Epaphroditus to help him out. We find that out in chapter 2. And here he is back with us. What joy would abound in their hearts? And Paul says, that's what I'm concerned with, your joy. What's going to bring you joy? That's what I want. 
And the third thing that would result from that is in verse 26, where the Apostle Paul says, so that your proud confidence, that is your boasting, in the in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. In other words, you're going to progress in the faith, you're going to experience joy, and you're going to issue out in praise to God so that your proud boasting, your confidence, may abound in Christ Jesus. You are going to praise Him, you're going to glorify Him, you're going to thank Him. When I show up, the Apostle Paul says, it will result in glory being given to Christ Jesus on behalf of me. You have prayed for me, you have supported me, you have asked God on behalf of me to release me, so that if I show up, it's going to result in your progress, in your joy, in your abundant exultation and proud confidence and boasting in the person of Jesus. And so He would be glorified. That's what Paul wanted. Whether in life, he says in verse 18, or whether in death, that Christ would always be exalted in my body. That's all he was concerned about. What would result in the progress of the Gospel, your joy, and the glory of God? Now in wrestling through all of this, the Apostle Paul is vacillating back through, back and forth between these two options. He has a decision to make. Well, not really, but he's wrestling through it as if he does. I have this decision to make. Can I do this? Or should I do this? Which one's most profitable? Now in making the decision, the Apostle Paul takes two factors into consideration. This is what we're closing with, so listen to this. Two factors into consideration. Number one, what is best for others? What is best for others? Not considering my own needs, but the needs of others ahead of my own. What's best for others? What is best for the Philippians? To depart and be with Christ? Joy for me. To stay on in the flesh? Joy for them. I'll choose what means joy for them. To depart and be with Christ? Far better for me. For me to remain on in the flesh? Far better for them. I'll choose to remain on in the flesh which is far better for them. To be with Christ, oh, much better for me. To stay on with you, to stay on here, much better for you. And so he says, given the two options, what's best for me, what's best for you, I will take what's best for me, I will subject it or submit it to what's best for you, and choose that which is best for you. What is better for others? Can you imagine how much folly you and I would avoid if we just asked that question every time we made a decision. What is best for others? Because a lot of times my interests run against the grain of your interests. Have you ever known that? That sometimes your interests are not the same as mine. And if I pursue my interests, it means cutting across yours. If I pursue what's best for me, sometimes that's not always what's best for you. So as Christians, when you're faced with that dilemma, what do I do? This is best for me. This is best for somebody else. These two options, equally desiring both, I will choose that, and you should choose that which is best for others, and not just that which is best for you. Imagine the folly that would be avoided if we just did that. Whatever's best for them, that's what I'm going to do. When I make a decision, and this is true of you too, when you and I make decisions, we have to factor in our wives or our husbands, our children, our grandchildren, the body of Christ, I have to factor in what's best for Dave and Jess as my fellow elders and serving alongside of each other. What's best for all of you? That comes into the equation. If I do this or I do that, what's best for the whole church? It's not just what's best for Jim Osmond. That's the most selfish, self-centered way of making a decision you could possibly pursue. But what is best for all of the brethren? We have to make decisions that way. The second factor that comes into Paul's equation, not just what's best for others, But second, what will result in glory being given to God? What will result in glory being given to God? Imagine how much folly and imagine how much sin we would avoid 
if we made decisions like this? What's best for others, and what would result in the glory to God? How can I make sure that Christ is, as always, manifested in my body, whether by life or by death, so that whether absent or whether present, we are well-pleasing to Him? That should be our consuming passion. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You and I were created for that purpose. We live for that purpose. Every decision that we make, everything that we do, is only a means to the end of bringing glory to God through Jesus Christ. So we ask those two questions. What is best for others? And what will most result in the glory of God? And let me tell you something. When you ask those two questions, it just peels back the layers and the curtains around your heart and shows the condition of your heart and mine. Am I self-centered or am I God-centered? Am I concerned about myself or am I concerned about the glory of God? And when we ask those questions, it reveals to us whether we live for ourselves or whether we live for others. What's most important? What's most beneficial? What's most meaningful for somebody else? Not myself. What's best for others? And what will most result in the glory of God in this decision that I make? And so Paul says, when I consider those two things, the decision is easy to make. I'm convinced that I will stay on and remain here in the flesh for the joy, the progress of you all, so that it may result to the glory of God. That's better for you. It's more glory to Christ that I stay than when I leave. So Paul says that's the decision I would make. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and for the light that it gives us into eternal things, into the mystery of what happens beyond the veil after our death. We ask God that you would, by your word, teach us and instruct us what we do not know, teach us, and what we are not, we pray that you would make us. All to the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name, for his sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.